Man's and woman's bodies lay without souls. Dully gaping, foolishly staring, inert on the flowers of Eden. God pondered. The problem was so great, it dragged him asleep. Crow laughed. He bit the worm, God's only son, into two writhing halves. He stuffed into man the tail half with the wounded end hanging out. He stuffed the head half head first into woman and it crept in deeper and up to peer out through her eyes, calling its tail half to join up quickly, quickly, because, oh, it was painful. Man awoke being dragged across the grass. Woman awoke to see him coming. Neither knew what had happened. God went on sleeping. Crow went on laughing. And that, of course, is Ted Hughes himself reading his poem, A Childish Prank, from his 1970 book called Crow. And the subtitle to the book was From the Life and Songs of the Crow. And with this episode, we will uh, finish our sort of re-recording project of what I think are Hughes's four best books, Moortown Diary, Remains of Elmet River, and finally, Crow. I've been uh, re-recording these episodes since I think uh, since January of this year. And with the other episodes, I sort of interspersed the letters and the publication history in the middle of the poems. But I think the poems in Crow are of such a kind of poetry. And the, the remarks that he has to say about them in his letters are also uh, have their own kind of specific character that I think that other than what I'm about to read, I think it's best to just read the poems and then hear from Hughes in his letters about what he thought of them. Now, the book was published in 1970. It included material that he had written, I believe, as early as 1966. And for the rest of his life, Hughes continued to write poems that he considered to be uh, crow pieces. Um, the last two poems that I will read here come from, I believe, 1973, from a pamphlet that, that just had a few other crow bits in it. And if you go looking in the collected poems of Ted Hughes, you will find all of the published crow poems uh, put together there. And in the back, in the appendix, uh, the editor sort of lists off the other pieces that he considered to be part of the sequence, but which were written many years later and were never all uh, collected together in the way that he quite wanted them to be. Uh, it also mentions that whenever he gave readings of the book, he would kind of mention a prose sequence or a prose story that would tie everything together. And he was sort of ambivalent about that explanation or that tying together or of, you guess, I guess what you might call the frame story. And so I won't be giving any of that here. If you go looking at his friend Keith Sagar's book, 
about Ted Hughes. He tries to piece together the story of Grow. But I think at, uh, when you look at the poetry, that explanation is sort of beside the point. And so if we just look at a letter that he wrote in March of 1968, and then we will get right back to the poetry, I think this is as good an explanation as we can get, or an introduction as we can get, um, to the poems. He's writing to his friend uh, Leonard Baskin, the illustrator, and it was because of his friend uh, Leonard Baskin who did a series of drawings of a crow that Hughes was inspired to write poems to go along uh, with the illustrations, and then the idea just seized him to make a sort of new myth about this character called the crow. And this is what Hughes says in March of 1968. The crow project did not fade. It has grown into a folk epic, which will be the length of a novel. Bushman prose, but more poems than prose. God has a nightmare. A voice attacks him. He cannot understand what is wrong. Man comes to heaven and asks to be permitted to cease to exist, since life is too awful. God is flabbergasted hearing these words from his prime creation, and the voice scorns man and God, his creator. God finally challenges the voice to do better, and the voice creates Crow. Crow goes into the world, and God tries everything to destroy him, pervert him, educate him out of him, educate him out of himself, etc. An epic of ordeals. This style of prolonged foraging gradually transforms indestructible crow into a super being who gets sacrificed. All through are a great many apocryphal legends about crow, some of which I enclose here. Mainly, Crow sings songs. God also sings songs, and many of the objects and beings which Crow meets sings songs. I enclose one or two of Crow's songs. No songs are typical because Crow himself gets transformed at every stage, but his songs are all in Crow talk, which is as base and crude and plain and ugly a talk as I can devise, though I haven't yet quite hit what I shall get. I enclose one or two of his songs. What if we do a short book now of some of these pieces, and then perhaps another book and another, and then finally, when the whole epic is complete, your drawings would be a tremendous series, and if I can go on and finish as I've started my part, it will also be okay. And you can see there at the beginning, he's imagining that there will, there will be prose pieces sort of interspersed here that ended up not happening at all. But what you do have and what uh, does happen all throughout is the crudity that he mentions. Uh, Crow not knowing a very great deal at all. Uh, the black humor, um, just the straight humor, the, the great brutality of it all. Um, the great brutality of human life and the violence that is done to humanity, uh, to the body of human beings and to the body of the earth and to the body of animals. This is something that is a great preoccupation of Hughes in the four books that I have read and um, perhaps most powerfully put 
in these uh, Crow poems. So let's just get to the poems and read straight through until uh, the end of my favorites of them. This is called Crow's First Lesson. God tried to teach Crow how to talk. Love, said God. Say, love. Crow gaped, and the white shark crashed into the sea and went rolling downwards, discovering its own depth. No, no, said God. Say, love. Now try it. Love. Crow gaped, and a blue fly, a tsetse, a mosquito, zoomed out and down to their sundry flesh pots. A final try, said God. Now, love. Crow convulsed, gaped, wretched, and man's bodiless, prodigious head bulbed out onto the earth with swiveling eyes jabbering protest, and Crow wretched again before God could stop him, and woman's vulva dropped over man's neck and tightened. The two struggled together on the grass. God struggled to part them, cursed, wept. Crow flew guiltily off. And, of course, there's a great deal of violence done in this collection between men and women. And the book is dedicated to Asiya and Shura. And so you look at the dates. He begins writing the poems in 1966. And in March of 1969, uh, Asiya Wevel and uh, his daughter with her, uh, Shura, Asiya kills herself and kills uh, their daughter as well. Uh, but you get a sense of, um, especially after the, the suicide of Sylvia Plath as well, um, Hughes's own view on uh, what is actually possible um, between people and in relationships. And we get a sense of the, the terror of that, of, of what people can do uh, to each other in this life. And in this next poem is called Crow Tyrannosaurus, and this is what it says. Creation quaked voices. It was a cortege of mourning and lament. Crow could hear, and he looked around fearfully. The swift's body fled past, pulsating, with insects and their anguish all it had eaten. The cat's body writhed, gagging, a tunnel of incoming death struggles, sorrow on sorrow, and the dog was a bulging filter bag of all the deaths that had gulped for the flesh and the bones. It could not digest their screeching finales. Its shapeless cry was a blort of all those voices. Even man, he was a walking abattoir of innocence, his brain incinerating their outcry. 
crow thought, Alas, alas, ought I to stop eating and try to become the light? But his eye saw a grub, and his head, trap-sprung, stabbed, and he listened, and he heard weeping. Grubs, grubs, he stabbed, he stabbed, weeping, 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 he walked and stabbed. Thus came the eye's roundness, the ear's deafness. And the next poem is called Crow and the Birds. When the eagle soared clear through a dawn, distilling of emerald, when the curlew trawled in sea dusk through a chime of wine glasses, when the swallow swooped through a woman's song in a cavern, and the swift flicked through the breath of a violet, when the owl sailed clear of tomorrow's conscience, and the sparrow preened himself of yesterday's promise, and the heron labored clear of the bessemer upglare, and the blue tit zipped clear of lace panties, and the woodpecker drummed clear of the rotavator and the rose farm, and the peewit tumbled clear of the laundromat, while the bullfinch plumped in the apple bud, and the goldfinch bulbed in the sun, and the wryneck neck crooked in the moon, and the dipper peered from the dewball. Crow, spraddled head down in the beach garbage, guzzling a dropped ice cream. And now we hear a poem called Crow Ego. Crow followed Ulysses till he turned as a worm, which Crow ate, grappling with Hercules two puff adders. He strangled in error De Janeiro. The gold melted out of Hercules' ashes in an electrode in Crow's brain, drinking Beowulf's blood, and wrapped in his hide, Crow communes with poltergeists out of old ponds. His wings are the stiff back of his only book, himself the only page of solid ink. So. He gazes into the quag of the past, like a gypsy into the crystal of the future, like a leopard into a fat land. Then, crow, blacker than ever, 
When God, disgusted with man, turned towards heaven, and man, disgusted with God, turned towards Eve, things looked like falling apart. But Crow, Crow, Crow nailed them together, nailing heaven and earth together. So man cried, but with God's voice, and God bled, but with man's blood. Then heaven and earth creaked at the joint, which became gangrenous and stank, a horror beyond redemption. The agony did not diminish. Man could not be man, nor God, God. The agony grew. Crow grinned, crying, This is my creation flying the black flag of himself. And in uh, Jonathan Bates' biography, he mentions that around the time that Hughes was writing these poems, uh, Hughes wrote an introduction or an essay, I think about a, a Polish poet, I think. And you end up seeing in the introduction that Hughes is talking might as well be talking about Crow, his own project of dealing with violence and all of this stuff. And he says something about that poet, uh, and think of this, this is 19, the late 60s, only 20 years after World War II, only 20 years after the Holocaust, after the Shoah. And he says that this man's poems are one of the few in which you truly understand that human beings die, that bodies die. Um, and the sense that I get from a, a lot of this and a lot of the violent reaction against the Crow poems, uh, or just the disgust in general with the way they talk about things and their bleak outlook um, on life, um, my sense is, or, or a way of putting it, is that, uh, and I think Hugh says as much in his letters, is that in his first two collections, um, which certain people think are his best books, his first two collections were quote-unquote literature. They were working within a tradition and doing traditional things, and um, he was able to wear that mask very well. And they're great poems. I love those books. Um, but there's a sense with Crow and with the other books he wrote in the 70s, especially the ones that I've re-recorded here that I mentioned, where literature is beside the point. Uh, Crow and um, More Town Diary, Remains of Elmet and River and these things, and basically Hughes' best poems, I would say, um, aren't things to study. They aren't things to put on an exam. Um, they aren't things that you memorize uh, for fun or you remember old-fashioned elocution lessons or the idea of uh, people studying painting or poetry because that is what you did in polite society. Like That is what happens to writing and inspiration and literature at some point. Uh, it becomes a parlor game that you can make small talk about. I think the best of Hughes is the really dark stuff, and it's the stuff that, that does go straight back into the jugular of what 
religion and myth um, are about. They're about these difficult, uh, very often bloody and very often violent and very often impossible situations. I think Hughes is talking straight out of Gilgamesh or Euripides or Sophocles or um, this, this really deep primal stuff is what he's getting at here uh, in these poems. It isn't literature uh, at some point uh, that is beside the point. And here we have these poems as well. This one is called Crow's Last Stand. Burning, burning, burning. There was finally something the sun could not burn that it had rendered everything down to, a final obstacle against which it raged and charred and rages and chars, limpid among the glaring furnace clinkers, the pulsing blue tongues and the red and the yellow, the green lickings of the conflagration, limpid and black crow's eye pupil in the tower of its scorched fort. That is the thing the sun cannot burn. Crow's eye pupil in the tower of its scorched fort. This poem is called Crow and the Sea. He tried ignoring the sea but it was bigger than death, just as it was bigger than life. He tried talking to the sea, but his brain shuddered and his eyes winced from it as from open flame. He tried sympathy for the sea, but it shouldered him off as a dead thing shoulders you off. He tried hating the sea, but instantly felt like a Scruddy, dry rabbit dropping on the windy cliff. He tried just being in the same world as the sea, but his lungs were not deep enough, and his cheery blood banged off it like a water drop off a hot stove. Finally, he turned his back and he marched away from the sea as a crucified man cannot move. This one is called Fragment of an Ancient Tablet. Above, the well-known lips delicately downed. Below, beard between thighs. Above her brow, the notable casket of gems. Below, the belly with its blood knot. Above, many a painful frown. Below, the ticking bomb of the future. Above, her perfect teeth with the hint of a fang at the corner. Below, the millstones of two worlds. Above, a word and a sigh. Below, 
gouts of blood and babies. Above, the face shaped like a perfect heart. Below, the heart's torn face. And this is Notes for a Little Play. First, the sun coming closer, growing by the minute. Next, clothes torn off. Without goodbye, faces and eyes evaporate, brains evaporate, hands, arms, legs, feet, head and neck, chest and belly vanish with all the rubbish of the earth. And the flame fills all space, the demolition is total, except for two strange items remaining in the flames, two survivors moving in the flames blindly, mutations at home in the nuclear glare, horrors hairy and slobbery, glossy and raw. They sniff towards each other in the emptiness. They fastened together. They seem to be eating each other, but they are not eating each other. They do not know what else to do. They have begun to dance a strange dance. And this is the marriage of these simple creatures, celebrated here in the darkness of the sun, without guest or God. And this one is called Love Song. He loved her and she loved him. His kisses sucked out her whole past and future, or tried to. He had no other appetite. She bit him, she gnawed him, she sucked. She wanted him complete inside her, safe and sure, forever and ever. Their little cries fluttered into the curtains. Her eyes wanted nothing to get away. Her looks nailed down his hands, his wrists, his elbows. He gripped her hard so that life should not drag her from that moment. He wanted all future to cease. He wanted to topple with his arms round her, off that moment's brink and into nothing, or everlasting, or whatever there was. Her embrace was an immense press to print him into her bones. His smiles were the garrets of a fairy palace where the real world would never come. Her smiles were spider bites, so he would lie still till she felt hungry. His words were occupying armies. Her laughs were in assassin's attempts. His looks were bullets, daggers of revenge. Her glances were ghosts in the corner with horrible secrets. His whispers were whips and jackboots. Her kisses were lawyers steadily writing. His caresses were the last hooks of a castaway. Her love tricks were the grinding of locks 
and their deep cries crawled over the floors like an animal dragging a great trap. His promises were the surgeon's gag. Her promises took the top off his skull. She would get a brooch made of it. His vows pulled out all her sinews. He showed her how to make a love knot. Her vows put his eyes in formalin. At the back of her secret drawer, their screams stuck in the wall. Their heads fell apart into sleep like the two halves of a lopped melon. But love is hard to stop. In their entwined sleep they exchanged arms and legs. In their dreams their brains took each other hostage. In the morning they wore each other's face. Is there a more bleak love poem in the world um, than that? And this is the final poem from the proper formal collection of Crow. This is called Little Blood. And then I'll read two more from uh, that were published later. Little Blood. Oh, little blood, hiding from the mountains in the mountains, wounded by stars and leaking shadow, eating the medical earth. Oh, little blood, little boneless, little skinless, plowing with a linnet's carcass, reaping the wind and threshing stone. Oh, little blood, drumming in a cow's skull, dancing with a gnat's feet, with an elephant's nose, with a crocodile's tail, grown so wise, grown so terrible, sucking death's moldy tits. Sit on my finger, sing in my ear, oh, little blood. two other crows that were published in 1973. First is called Crow's Courtship. Crow got impatient, knocking on God's door. Hurry up with my bride, he cried, for the years are passing. He could see old women going in by the cartload. He could hear the furnace thundering in the flues of heaven as God forged the body of his bride out of the carcasses of hags. Silence, shouted God. You are interrupting the great work. Only get away and be patient. Crow shuffled at the door, hummed a little. He stared down onto the hills of orchards then stood sweating, transfixed by fantasy. Before he was aware, he was battering on God's door. Hurry up with my bride, for the years are passing. The hag's bodies, though they were dead and red-hot, 
screeched under the hammers of God, laminations of hag millionfold in the blade of a bride's body. Get away, shouted God. You are ruining the work. Will you get away and be patient? Crow nodded his arms. His breast was a sweltering boil on the pain of impatience. He kicked open the door. God roared into tears. Crow stared wooden-eyed at the heap of ashes. The worst moment, God wept. The worst moment. And that is a terribly awful, terribly funny poem. This is perhaps my favorite of them, and one of my favorite poems of Hughes called Crow's Song About God, um, which moves out of myth, or maybe stays in myth, and what it does is just bring in the horrors of the 20th century. This sounds like um, an explanation of the century just past, and who the hell knows the century still to come. Um, we need to have visions like this every now and then, I think, as Hugh said about uh, that Polish poet's um, work, poems which actually understand that people die. Uh, Crow's Song About God. Somebody is sitting under the gatepost of heaven, under the lintel, on which are written the words, forbidden to the living. A knot of eyes, eye holes, lifeless, the life shape, a rooty old oak stump, a ground in the ooze of some putrid estuary, snaggy with amputations, his fingernails broken and bitten, his hair vestigial and purposeless, his toenails useless and deformed, his blood filtering between in the coils of his body, like the leech life in a slime and ochre pond, under the smoldering collapse of a town dump, his brain a hacked ache, a dull flint, his solar plexus crimped in his gut, hard, a plastic carnation and a gutter puddle outside the registry office. Somebody sitting under the gatepost of heaven. Head fallen forward like the nipped head of somebody strung up to a lamppost with a cheese wire or an electric flex or with his own belt, trousers round his ankles, face gutted with shadows like a village gutted with bombs, weeping plasma, weeping whiskey, weeping egg white. He has been choked with raw steak. It hangs black over his chin. Somebody, propped at the gateway of heaven, clinging to the tick of his watch, under a dream muddled as vomit, that he cannot vomit, he cannot wake up to vomit. He only lifts his head and lulls it back against the gate post of heaven. Like a broken sunflower, eye sockets empty, stomach laid open to the inspection of the stars, 
the operation unfinished. The doctors ran off. There was some other emergency. Sweat cooling on his temples, hands hanging. What would be the use now of lifting them? They hang clumps of blood clot, varicose and useless as afterbirths. But God sees nothing of this person. His eyes occupied with his own terror as he mutters, My Savior is coming. He is coming who does not fear death. He shares his skin with it. He gives it his cigarettes. He cuts up its food. He feeds it like a baby. He keeps it warm. He cherishes it in the desolations of space. He dresses it up in his best. He calls it life. He is coming. And those are my handful of crow poems. Now, if we go and look at what Hughes had to say about the book, the very first letter that mentions it is in October of 1966, where he says, I've been writing lots in the history, songs, discourses, bedtime stories, and general doggerel of one, Crow. Crow is very crude, nearly illiterate, very rough, and has not heard of most things, but he's a relief after the poems I put together and sent off a couple of months ago. I'll send you some of his primitive attempts when I get the courage to see them in type. And the poems that he just sent off are the ones that we published in 1967 in his third book, which was called Woad Woe. Chronologically speaking, the next part would be what I read earlier, uh, writing to his friend Leonard Baskin in 1968, um, when he is still in the midst of these poems. Let's see, the one after that uh, is in March of 1969. He says, I got going on my crow thing very busily, slowly turning into something mostly unpublishable, I think, to something or other. I've got a lot of short pieces, but they make more sense with the prose story, which is what's not too elevated. A super crude prose, which will probably leave me psychically deformed. And as we know, he never got around to doing uh, the prose, and the poems themselves were enough uh, to leave him uh, psychically deformed. And let's see. A moment later, he says, in the autumn of 1969, later that year, he says, My trouble is, I need two weeks now before I get to the point where I begin to get what I want. And each time I've got there, about three times, something happened to break it up after one or two pages. But mostly, I just have not gotten there. Think of everything that I just read to you and imagine an entire book of 60 or 70 more poems in that vein, in that tone, 
in that uh, uh, horrific uh, detail of taking history and uh, love and all the things that poetry elevates, that poetry can elevate and should elevate, things that are worth elevating, but instead using them to tell uh, the most basic myth and the hardest, uh, some of the hardest realizations. It would do this to you. Um, the idea of trying to write these things over and over and over again. On the next page, let's see, and this is interesting, this is part of the same letter. As I've mentioned in the other episodes on his books, um, what he end up doing, uh, usually at the end of a decade when he's looking back on it, is he says, everything I did before is wrong and I should have been doing this. And here is a great instance of that in 1969, um, where his, uh, he's had three collections of poetry and uh, he is suddenly not happy with any of them. Um, he is about to turn 40 years old and, uh, in 1970, and this is what he says. I have decided that I've been trying to write verse in completely the wrong way for some years. I've been excluding the real thing. I institutionalized the mode of one or two successes in 1962 and got myself stuck on the board of management. So my best seven years have passed in error and futile strife. Are they the best seven years? Everybody's life between 30 and 40 seems to be a special chaos. When you reap what the innocent eagerness of your twenties sowed, and before you can wise up. We are now, he says, we are now wising up. And I think by saying he institutionalized the mode of one or two successes and got myself stuck on the board of management, I think that's another way of saying what I said earlier, where it is all merely uh, literature, which is hard enough to do, to write great things that people want to read and study and review and uh, do the polite book publishing thing. Um, but even that is not enough for him. Um, in March of 1970, he says this, I haven't written anything for a year. I was writing a long series of poems about a crow, uh, about a crow being, a sort of saga that puts this crow through all sorts of extremes. At the absolute nadir, it dragged me into a great depression and Asya with me. And then the thing happened, that is, the death of Asya and uh, his daughter. So I have this depressing collection of poems about a crow. And on the next page, in March of 1970, he says, I finished my crows, or rather, I stopped writing at them. I got him right to the bottom of the inferno, where, in piecing together the fragments of the beloved, he himself is reduced to a scattered skeleton. And at that point, the world intervened. So there his bones still are. I haven't written a word since, for a year to the day. A lot of what I wrote is very much my best. And here and there, and in one piece in particular, I touched something. If only I can get back to that.
point. And in my episode about the other books that Hughes wrote in the 70s, I mentioned how he got distracted doing drama and got distracted doing this and that. And again, always, he returned to it, uh, got out of whatever engagement it was, and eventually ended up saying, I should have been doing this. I should have just been trying to get back to this thing. A few pages later, in March or April of 1970, he writes this. My Crow book comes out in October. 59 poems out of about 90. The long, beautiful saga has not come to anything. I simply could not hammer out the style I wanted. Maybe I will. It keeps on hanging around. It's a permanent dismay that I did not press straight on when I got to the point. I'm not sure I shall be able to get back there again. There were moments when I really felt my bones open. And then, let's see. This is after the book has come out. He says, um, September of 1971, I'm trying to get back to writing some verse. Crow is okay, but it's no more than a knocking on the door, really. Now that Carol, his wife, has everything so watertight, I'm going to try doing what I should have done 10 years, just drop everything and see how far I can get by working at nothing but verse for six months. If there's anything there, I'd better be getting it now. That's my feeling late in the day. And let's see. It's worth taking a break from his remarks to read just a brief something from the biography of Hughes written by Jonathan Bate. One of the interesting things that happened when Crow comes out, uh, he mentions all the reviews, but one of the reviews is quite remarkable. Um, it says in the New York Times book review, uh, they trumpeted uh, Crow uh, by saying, this is no mere book of poems but a wild yet cunning wail of anguish and resilience, at once contemporary, immediate, and as atavistic as the archaic myth that it resembles. While astutely adding, without knowledge of the importance of the experience of Ted Hughes' father, that, quote, among British poets, Hughes is the most haunted inheritor from Wilfred Owen and Robert Graves, of the sensibility shaped by the appalling slaughter of World War I. So many of the, the reviews of the time, especially by Hughes Contemporary, say, here is someone who can finally write about all the horrors that are going on right now. Here is the poetry that you can write after the Holocaust, that kind of thing. But um, in the other episodes on Hughes that I've done, and to anyone who's read the letters or the biography, World War I is the thing that is in his mind most of the time for brutality and savagery. And it's interesting that the New York Times was able to pick up on that uh, right away. Um, and this is just a long passage, it's just about a page, from Jonathan Bates' biography. And uh, this is what it says about Crow. 
a crow, furthermore, had an immensely long gestation. It had begun from a request by Leonard Baskin to write a poem called The Anatomy of Crow, to go with a collection of his trademark crow drawings, a request made just three weeks after Sylvia Plath's death, with the explicit intention of propelling Ted from despair to activity. A rendering called Eat Crow came first in 1964 as part of a long, waddling verse drama uh, based on something called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Then there was a plan for a folktale, initially for children, with the crow in a similar role to that of the raven in the North American Indian tales. Hughes recalled making his first attempt before going to Ireland in 1965, and then starting the sequence in earnest after his completion of the series of Skylark's lyrics, published in 1966, a trajectory from an ascending bird long associated with lyric song to a descent into carrion. Things had started to flow on the trip along the Rhine with Asia Wevel, but had been there halted by the work of organizing for the first Poetry International Festival. A contract had been signed early 1967, and he had tried to grow the work into a saga, an epic poem, a creation myth, a counter-theology, and he continued on and off as his relationship with Asia imploded. The Crow was many things and required many explanations. One of the most revealing was a gloss in the poem called Crow on the Beach, in which Hughes explained that the guiding metaphor of the sequence came from his reading of the trickster tale, familiar for many different folk traditions. The trickster, Ted knew a whole array of examples, from Loki in the Norse sagas to the anthropologist Paul Radin's study of the trickster cycle of the Winnebago Indians, is part god, part human, part animal figure, who has some secret knowledge or power that is used to play tricks in order to disrupt the normal rules of nature and question the conventional behavior of society. Though the intentions may be malicious, the outcome is ultimately valuable for humanity. The trickster is cheater of death, hero and clown. He is both good and evil, affirmer and denier, destroyer and creator. The trickster and sexuality, Ted Hughes alleges in his commentary, are, quote, connected by the hotline. Trickster and sexuality are connected by a hotline. Trickster literature corresponds to the infantile, irresponsible naivete of sexual love as if it were founded on the immortal enterprise of the sperm. End quote. The crow, like the trickster, has a kind of tragic joy and is repetitive and indestructible. It is a demon of phallic energy. He makes fatal mistakes, indulges tragic flaws, but refuses to let sufferings or death detain him. Never despairing, however low he falls, he, quote, rattles along on biological glee. At the same time, Hughes explained elsewhere that crow is another word for the entrails, lungs, heart, etc., everything extracted from a beast when it is gutted. 
what is extracted when this is done is the vital organism of the creature, lacking only the brain and the nerves. At a profound and symbolic level, Crow is a skeletal autobiography. And I will quote from Hughes, the crow of a man, in other words, is the essential man, only minus his human-looking vehicle, his bones and muscles, end quote. Ted Hughes was looking into the heart of his own darkness. The color of the collection is the black of crow and death. The outlines are of blood, claw, and bone. Now, with that in mind, get back to the aftermath of these poems. Let's see, you go to the two letters that he wrote to his friend, um, Keith Sagar. Let's see what they say. This is in October of 1973. Uh, he says, I wonder now if I wouldn't have defended my bird from the common reaction, which is that he is a disgusting creature, an evil omen, etc., if I'd been a little more forward with his lineage, and then he lists off Crow's lineage. Crow as the totem of England, history of Bran, his ravens, the Tower of London. Crow in early Celtic literature, the Moragu, the death goddess, a crow, and the underground form of the original life goddess, as Hecate was of Aphrodite, etc. Apollo, the crow god, crow in China, crow among the Siberian peoples and the North American Indians, crow in alchemy. Crow is a modern evil omen bird only insofar as he is a fallen god. He is anathema because he was originally anath. Except that my main concern was to produce something with the minimum cultural accretions of the museum sort, something autochthonous and complete in itself as it might be invented after the Holocaust and demolition of all libraries where essential things spring again, if at all, only from their seeds in nature and are not lugged around or hoarded as preserved harvests from the past. So the comparative religion slash mythology background was irrelevant to me except as I could forget it. If I couldn't find it again, original, in Crow, I was not interested to make a trophy of it. And he says, as for the style, I was simply, I simply tried to shed everything. It was quite an effort to get there, as much of an effort to stay there. Every day I had to find it again. It was like hanging on to nine and a half seconds to 100 yards. I tried to shed everything that the average Pavlovian critic knows how to respond to. It was a wonderful sensation when I finally got there. My idea was to reduce my style to the simplest clear cell, and then regrow a wholeness and richness organically from that point. I did not get that far. And then what's interesting is all throughout uh, this book of letters that he sent to uh, Keith Sagar in 1980, 1989, 1985, 1989, and finally 1998, uh, Keith Sagar is constantly asking him, 
are you continuing to write these crow poems? And Hughes is constantly saying, yes, I am. I am trying to do this, but it never uh, does get finished uh, in his lifetime. This is a letter from 1992. This is one of the great long letters that is near the end of Hughes's collection of letters that says so much about uh, his process and his ideas. He says, so my ideal with Crow was to somehow first get a hold of this open, larger, inclusive, but still top pressure simplicity. There it is again. And then, this is 20 years after the letter I read to you just now, simplicity again. And then to complicate and solidify it with all the experience, all my grasp of the actual world that I'd managed hands full of in the earlier pieces that it excluded. In other words, to bring all I'd gained into a poetry about life in general. I only got as far as the end of the simplifications stage. The actual poems are when water began to play and horrible religious error, then autobiographical things, knocked it all to bits as before. Hughes's biography and, and the, the letters and all of it are just a great evidence that, uh, and a great reassurance that we should not, as poets, as creative people, ever be satisfied. Um, if Hughes couldn't figure out how to do it, and yet we can still take what we need from the fragments from the fragments he shored against his ruin that he left behind, I think there is hope for the rest of us. And I will leave this with you tonight, just this little paragraph written in February of 1998, only a few months before he died, um, where he is continuing to talk um, about Crow and what he wished he could have done with it. So thank you all for listening. And here is our last bit of Hughes on Crow. I remember when I was doing those Crow pieces, every time I wrote down, once upon a time there was a, inevitably, I got a kind of story, a metamorphic tale, a spiel of some kind, that I could never alter much, and that always came out of nowhere, total surprise. And I remember thinking, if I write one of these every other day and stick at it, after a few years, what would I have? A whole autobiography of my mythic life at some level. Ah, God, why didn't I stick at it? Is it too late to try again? Those are my thoughts now.